0: Why don't we start with a prayer? This is a very ancient prayer. I don't know if you know it, but uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. So well, welcome to the uh, New Exploring Catholicism class. This is going to be on the history of the church. Um, it's kind of an introduction, but I have to admit, I'm going to put more weight on the early church because later in the Middle Ages when there's an argument, I'll say, remember when I said blah, 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 blah. And Larry will be like, I fell asleep at that point. Um, so I want to put a little heavier on the early church. But also, um, here's a great book I haven't read. Um, but I really, really want to read it. I just, I have three books I need to finish. And then I have a bunch of books that I just, if I want to relax, read. But um, so it's ridiculous. I'm advocating a book I haven't read. But it's by Joe Heschmeier. Uh, the early church was Catholic. He's uh, really, I just, Love his stuff. So um, since I know it'll be a month or so before I can get this read, if you want to read it, uh, just give me your driver's license and a blood sample. Um, just please give it back to me. Uh, but it makes a really good argument that the early church was Catholic. And he goes through the uh, evidence. But I want to start on this. If you're going to study uh, the Catholic church, St. Pius the Ninth said, Every Christian must become a spiritual Semite. A Semite is Hebrew, Jewish. But there's no way you can study Christianity, and especially Catholicism, unless you really understand a little bit about Judaism. Because the church grew out of Judaism. Now, in my former parish, there are some people who really got upset when I said that. Um, so let me repeat it. <laughs> um you will not understand parts of Catholicism unless you understand the Old Testament. Because um, the history of Christianity is firmly rooted in Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Um, and so uh, many people suppose that Christ, um, Christ, sorry, Christians disagree that Christianity was born from Judaism, but it was. So let's just start a little bit with Judaism. You have the, these prophecies of the coming of Christ. Thousands of prophecy. What would happen when Christ arrived? Um, now, there's prophecies that when the Christ comes, something new will happen. Uh, that, And if I lose you on this, just please raise your hand. I invented this gesture. Um, but the Christ would be a new Moses. The Christ would be a new, new Moses that led the people Uh, to a new promised land that gave us a new Passover meal that established a new temple, uh, a new priesthood, all the things that Moses did, and that Christ would be a new David, a king that would restart the Davidic kingdom. Um, New law, new Passover, new temple, new promised land, a promised land that's not in Israel. Do you guys know where the new promised land is? Really, one person got it? Um, Really, you guys didn't get the New Promised Land? Yes. Well, not new. The New Promised Land is heaven. That's where we're headed towards. Um, I know a lot of people think Montana, but no, it's heaven. Um, A new priesthood that would have Gentiles in it, a new temple. Um, So the point being is that the Old Testament, in some ways, describes what this new church will look like when Christ comes. And Isaiah makes many prophecies about this new Zion that will have a new priesthood with, with Gentile priests. And there'll be sacrifices in this new temple throughout the world. Now, uh, all those prophecies about this new order that Christ will bring makes only sense in the Catholic Church. In some sense, Catholicism really is more aligned with ancient Judaism than modern Judaism is. Because Catholicism um, has continued the ancient Jewish, Judah, uh, Jewish theology of a Passover, an exodus, a church, a temple, a priesthood, and sacrifice. Now, I'm not against modern um, Judaism. But the problem is, when the temple was destroyed, the Romans came in, destroyed the temple, and killed all the priests. They wanted Judaism to end. Uh, But modern Judaism doesn't have any priest or sacrifice or temple. That was the very heart of Judaism in the Old Testament was sacrifice. Um, And modern Judaism, what they have is rabbis, teachers, synagogues, which is preaching. But they don't have any uh, sacrifice. And I'm I'm just being technical. There hasn't been an orthodox Passover in 2,000 years. Um, because there is no priests anymore. They killed them all. Uh, There is no temple. You have to have a temple. So modern Judaism doesn't have the theology of ancient Judaism. Temple, priesthood, sacrifice, um, offering bread and wine every Sabbath. If you know the Old Testament, to keep the Sabbath, you priests must offer bread and wine. Um, The temple was destroyed. None of that exists anymore. The wall, the Romans, came in and wiped the temple off the face of the earth and killed all the priests. But there is one church that has kept the Passover. There is one Passover that celebrates the Lamb of God. There's one church in 2,000 years that has offered bread and wine by priests every Sabbath. So this very ancient Christian, uh, Clement of Rome, he was a pope, writes that the ancient church... um, ancient church, uh, has the duties of priesthood and sacrifices that were taken up from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So what he's doing is applying the theology of the Old Testament to the church, such as, like, priesthood. And I'm just going to get into it. The priesthood of the Old Testament had three levels. It had the high priest, the regular priest, and then the Levites that did all the work. Um... Catholicism, the same thing. You have uh, apostles, bishops, priests, and deacons who do all the work because we're not supposed to. (laughs) Um, But the Passover is fulfilled in the Eucharist. The Lechem panin, if you know what that is, that is fulfilled in the Eucharist. Do you know what the Lechem Ha'Panin is? So the Lechem Ha'Panin, it means the face of God. So sometimes I'll say that at, at the beginning of Mass. I'll say, as we gather together to share in the face of God. Um, so just, just curious. Seriously, raise your hand. I'm just kind of curious. How many people know the Lechem Ha'opinim? Lechem Ha'opinim, the face of God? OK. So it's one more little thing of Judaism, this prophecy. Um, I'm really kind of surprised you didn't know that, because I know I've talked about it. But <laughs> I'm not bitter. Um, The the prophecy is is that, well, not the prophecy. God tells um, the Jews that every Sabbath you must offer 12 loaves of bread and two flagons of wine. The bread, the 12 loaves, symbolizes the people offering their lives to God. The two flagons means relationship. And God says, I, I don't need that. You need it. You offer the bread and wine every Sabbath because you need to turn your life into this continual offering And what they called in Hebrew, that offering, is called um, the lechem ha the bread of the presence of God, or the bread of the face of God. And when God says that, he said, this will be a perpetual command. You're never allowed out of it. So, which church has continued to offer bread and wine every Sabbath? All these ancient prophecies, that point is all these ancient prophecies are fulfilled in the Catholic Church. God bless Protestants. But Protestants would say, or some some actually early Protestants would say, Jesus abolished the Old Testament and its liturgies and replaced it with no liturgy whatsoever. We'd say no. We'd say no. What Jesus did is fulfill all those ancient uh, liturgical sacrifices and ritual into the Eucharist. Now, That's a class on the Eucharist. I'm not going to go into it. Um, I will someday if you want, but this is on church history. The early Christians believed the opposite, that the Lord came to elevate the Old Testament and turn the symbolic liturgies of the Old Testament into the real liturgy that is efficacious, the Eucharist. So biblically, Catholics would say that Christ came to fulfill the Old Testament um, in the New Testament. Um, Protestants believe that Christ breathed on the scriptures because that's what it says. That when it says breathe, it means inspired. Uh, it literally says that, that Christ breathed on the scriptures. But that word inspired in Greek, um, it means breathed on. But if you notice, Christ also breathes on the sacramental system. Notice at the Last Supper when he breathes on the um, bread and the wine have you ever wondered why um i do have scoliosis but um when the priest holds a cup or the bread he bends over like this he's breathing on it it's this if you knew the old testament you th- or sorry new testament you say, oh the sacramental system is inspired when he's resurrected what does he do to the 12 apostles he breathes on them then it says he sent him their spirit so yeah we would say not only is Scripture breathed on, inspired, but so is the sacramental system and the leaders. Evangelicals preached the Old Testament and all its symbolic prophecies were simply abolished. Early Christians never saw it that way. They saw that it was all fulfilled in a church. Um, They would see that Christ fulfilled the Old Old Testament in the New Testament. So in the book of Acts, you see these parallelisms between the Old Testament and New Testament church, such as um, in Acts, being received into Christ is being received into the church. Um, That's baptism. So if you become Catholic, sorry, if you become Jewish, you're technically in the Old Testament. You're not born Jewish. You have to be inserted in a previous relationship that existed between God and the people. Same with the Catholic church. Um, early church would say, oh, you're not born Catholic. You're inserted into this relationship that existed long before you. Um, So the modern Protestant idea is that one just needs to have a personal relationship with Jesus um, without any relationship to a body, to a pre-existing people. Uh, Nowhere in scripture does it say that, that you have to have a personal relationship you're inserted, in fact, it says the opposite, into a pre-existing relationship. Um, so you have all these prophecies, is my point, in the Old Testament. If you look at all those prophecies about Christ and the church that it would bring, it's only fulfilled in us. And then you have prophecies not of something new, but of something old returning, such as the bread of life. There's this prophecy, you know, Moses prayed and the bread of life came down, and the prophecy was is that when Christ comes, Christ who's greater than Moses. When Christ prays, the bread of life would come down, but then it says it will stay forever. So it's the return of the bread of life. That's one of the key signs of the Christ. So when the uh, Pharisees, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, and they say, do the sign. Do this. What's the sign? The sign is the bread of life returning. The other one, when the Christ comes, the Garden of Eden, would return, would be welcomed back into the Garden of Eden and would become one family. We'd say, yes, in heaven, is, heaven is the Garden of Eden. And we do become one family again, not you know, all different sex. So you have prophecies of the new, prophecies of the return, prophecies of fulfillment. Um, fulfillment is um, God promised abraham to one day send the lamb of god not a lamb of god but the lamb of god there's also a prophecy of fulfillment that when christ comes he will marry his people well christ is the lamb of god christ at the last supper i'm getting a little too much into liturgy what is christ wearing at the last supper a wedding dress um yeah god and humanity has become united And then the prophecy was that all sacrifices would end except the Toda sacrifice. It would be fulfilled. So what does Toda mean in Hebrew? Thanksgiving. How do you say Thanksgiving in Greek? Yeah. Uh, All these prophecies and teachings of the church, the sacrament, the hierarchy, um, all these are fulfilled in the Old Testament. Um, Anyhow... um, I do like the fact that uh, Christianity is the only religion, uh, the wedding feast lamb of God, only religion that God marries us. It speaks about this new church, so like I don't think you can study the history of the church without realizing that the early church, what they saw, that wow, Christ is fulfilling all these Old Testament. Now, if we simply gave the New Testament to somebody who's never heard of Christianity. Um, they would never have guessed that thousands of years ago uh, you'd have cardinals and cassocks and all that stuff, right? Because guess when that was added? In the Middle Ages. Does that make any sense? So like, I just want to establish this, that to me there's an importance of this fulfillment of the Old Testament in the early church, that the early church fulfills all that. So like if somebody says, well, how come you're not wearing a cassock Well, because I don't live in the 17th century. like That's when that started. Does that make sense? What I will continue is what was prophesied and what was fulfilled uh, in the presence of the early apostles. Um, So that's the new church. But you can see the things that Christ wanted in the new church. Um, You can see that. Uh, A new Israel. The prophecy is a new Israel. New Israel that would include Gentiles. um, Sacraments. The bread of life coming back. Bread and wine being offered. A priesthood. Christ actually starts a hierarchical structure. um, A church that offers, according to the prophecy, sacrifices from the rise of the sun to its setting all over the world. Now remember, in Judaism, there's only one place you can offer a sacrifice. That's Jerusalem. But when the Christ came, sacrifices would be offered throughout the world, from the rising of the sun to its setting. So everywhere in the world, uh, a sacrifice, one sacrifice, would be offered. Name one church in the history of humanity that throughout the world, uh, one sacrifice is offered everywhere in the world. What church would that be? Um, So like all these prophecies, really, in one sense, uh, they're fulfilled. And when Christ comes, what does Christ say? He, he's repeated several times that he wants to start a new church. So it kind of drives me up the wall when people say, "I don't believe in organized religion." Well, Jesus did. Um, but my point being is on the first um, point is the Jewishness of the Catholic Church. So I have a master's in liturgy. You know you have to study. If you get liturgy, the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Because if you study liturgy, it's a study of Judaism, Um, even the Mass. Um, You have the synagogue worship, which is the liturgy of the word, Um, the same liturgy we have that comes from a synagogue worship. The second half of the Mass is a Passover. Um, So my point being is that where did the Catholic Church get its liturgical theology? It's biblical worship. The number one symbol in the Old Testament is worship. How you worship God is through a meal. Now, that's my point being is that a synagogue is not worship. I know that sounds strange. You don't worship in a synagogue. A synagogue is for preaching and education. So the New Testament writers, synagogues existed at the time of Jesus, obviously, and you would go and you could pray them, but they early church, like the early apostles and early Jews at the time of uh, the early church, would have never said that you worship in a synagogue. A synagogue is for preaching and prayer, but only true worship happens in, in the temple. Um, Malachi said, wow, when the Christ comes, worship would be everywhere. Uh, but if you study like any liturgy, you really first have to study Judaism, So where did the Catholic Church get its liturgical theology? The Jews, that's my point. Does that make sense? Um, When to celebrate the Eucharist? Now, obviously, there's not completely, right? There's a break, such as when to celebrate the Eucharist. The Sabbath is actually not Sunday. But Acts said that the early Christians gathered on the first day of the week, or sometimes they'll say the eighth day of the week, What's the first day of the week? What's the eighth day of the week? So, yeah, we worship according to the early Christians. It's not a complete uh, oneness with Judaism. Judaism uh, worships at the last day of the week. We worship the first day of the week. Why? Because the Bible tells us to. Um, So the early Christians would go to the synagogue for readings on Saturday, but then on the Sabbath, Sunday, they would go for the uh, Lord's it, the Lord's meal. So the math, mass is both a synagogue worship and a Passover meal. Um, so they changed that. They would face, when they celebrate mass, they'd face the rising sun. That was actually an Essene practice. Um, like the dead, people were at the Dead Sea Scrolls looking for God. Uh, when they, worship, they work, worshiped, they worshipped not in churches like ours, because you are persecuted. That's, you know, if you're persecuted, you don't want to let them know where you are. Where they worship is in people's homes. And then they'd knock out a wall so that you can easily fit 50 people into it. Early church parishes were only 50 uh, people. And you'd have this U-shaped table, and the middle part of the table would be so servants, that when they ate, they'd be in U-shape. So... Servants could come in the middle part and serve you and you'd sit on the outside and then you could throw your trash in the middle um, and they'd pick it up. I want to get back to that. Um, so when, when he says, oh, you throw, uh, Jesus tells this parable of Lazarus where they throw the uh, pita bread, the napkins, and the dogs eat it up. That's actually how people ate. So in the early church, they would celebrate in this odd U-shape. Um, but this sounds kind of strange. No other food was allowed when the, su- when the Eucharist was being celebrated. The only thing, and you'd try and fast an hour beforehand, the only thing you would uh, allow, food you'd allow in there was the Eucharist. So like for me, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't really like the design of our church because it doesn't have a clear distinction between social and religious. Does that make sense? Like, I usually like like glass doors. or But on the other side of the wa- um, holy water font, no food is allowed in the church. Um, ours, you know, it's kind of multi-purpose. So, um, but even St. Paul talks about that. When they'd pray, they'd be in the oran position, the hands open. Uh, Jews, and, and um, I'm just lightly covering this, Jews in the synagogue, they'd have a chair, a chair for Moses. Well, we had the chair of Peter. Literally, um, if you go to the Vatican, where that Holy Spirit stained glass window is, they've encased Peter's original chair. That's why there's a chair, uh, a presider's chair. Um, anyhow, um, you have all these great symbols that were part of Judaism. Judaism had a chair, but it was the chair of Moses. Now we have the chair of Peter. Um, early Christians, if you go to uh, uh, frescoes and stuff they often have a pomegranate and you have to think why a pomegranate it was a jewish symbol both of the return to the garden of eden the idea is um uh the seeds in a pomegranate you can't put back together (laughs) um but it's a symbol of the garden of eden you'd have all these boat images why a boat uh ark peter's ark so my point being is that oh i get it it the Catholic Church derives from the Jewish Church, but is something new. But here's my point: If you want to pray like the apostles, how did the apostles pray? We know. In Acts, it tells they gathered together to celebrate the Eucharist. We still do that. They pray the hours. That's the liturgy of the hours. Um, and um, anyhow, so uh, but they didn't just make up prayers. Like, well, if you say, "Well, you're a Christian." You know, like I had to tell at my staff meeting, former parish, with this great employee, um, youth minister, and whenever he said, well, why don't you pray? He would always say, Lord Jesus, we, we just gather together and we just want to feel your spirit. and We just, so I said, you can pray, but you can't use the word just. Because <laughs> it makes it look like it's, you know, I'm just loosey-goosey. You know what's really odd is that the early church, if you want to pray like the early church, they weren't that loosey-goosey. They did have the Lord's Prayer. They had the Liturgy of the Hours, which are memorized prayers. Um, I'm not saying you couldn't go off on your own, but their central prayer form was actually memorized prayer. The Shema was continued. And so um, Clement of uh, Clement of Rome, I mentioned him before, um, he writes in... 67 A.D. Now, I said that just to shock you. What's happening in 67 A.D.? Think about this. When was the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels written? Take a, take a guess. Sam, yeah. Well, no, that would have been uh, when it was canonized. When was it written? So somebody said 70, yeah. uh, The Gospel of Mark was written before 70 A.D. Um, They think the Gospel of Matthew and Luke was written between 70 and 80. Uh, John, John, The letter of John, the book of Revelation, um, that's a really hard one. Uh, Some say 100. I like it earlier than that. But think about this. So let's say the... New Testament is completely written down by 100 A.D. We have all this, it's called intertestamental. We have lots of letters and stuff written at the same time and before the New Testament was written. So uh, that should shock you, that we have other documents written the same time that the New Testament is getting written. Clement is 67. Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonians, is in 55 A.D. So it's really quite early, extremely early, um, really before even all three of the Gospels are written. And the shocking part is that Clement, who's the pope, writes to Corinthians and tells them, I'll talk about this later, you better get in line. You Corinthians, I mean, they're a pain in the rear end for St. Paul, they were for Clement. Um, That... Uh, Clement's, his letter is older than many parts of the Old Testament. Early Christians, um, uh, we know, worshipped and celebrated Mass. So in Clement's letter, he basically, if you read it, uh, tells them, the uh, Corinthians, that this is an organized church. Um, We have bishops, priests. um, You can't go off on your own. So Protestants say that the early church was unorganized and kind of free-form and just, you know, invisible and free-form. No, Clement's letter is one of the many proofs. It wasn't. Um, and remember how St. Paul has this problem with the Judaizers preaching something different than he was preaching? And at one point, they get in this argument, and uh, St. Paul is not from Jerusalem. Um, which would be the high credentials. St. Paul is from Tarsus. And these people from Jerusalem come, and they say, hey, we're the Orthodox one. For you to be Christian, you need to do all this other stuff that the apostles disagreed with. But you have to do this and this, and they're just making up stuff. You still have Catholics who do that today. And St. Paul says, no. um, I have a letter from the apostles saying I have authority and they say yes but we're from jerusalem and i said he says yes but i am from the 12 apostles does that make sense saint paul wouldn't have said that unless oh they recognize authority you don't get to just kind of make it up um and the point being is in acts you couldn't preach something separate than what the apostles believed and um i'll get into this later like uh, Luther said that Satan fooled everybody about the mass for centuries, um, except for me, because Luther was too... And Luther loves to quote St. Augustine over a hundred times. Um, but he had this pride that would say, "I, the early church was lost. Now only I am doing it right. But he's not in line with the 12 apostles. So my point being is that, ah, if you study liturgy, where did... Catholics get their liturgy it was from the Jews now granted it wasn't one-on-one look at the letters of Clement but it was organized Judaism is an organized religion it did have an organized way of worship Um, so we got our worship from the Jews we got our structure from the Jews Um, in Acts it tells how there's like people always think it was just Jesus and the 12 apostles he had hundreds of apostles but he chose 12. Why 12? Why 12 apostles, if he, uh, leaders, if there's just hundreds? 12 It's always 12. 12 always means the people of God. There's always 12. There's 12 tribes of the leaders. There's 12 governors in the kingdom of David. If you're Jewish and he picks 12, you'd realize, oh, he's fulfilling the prophecy. The kingdom is returning. Now, there was obviously more than just a couple hundred. At Pentecost, he gets 3,000. He preaches such a great homily on Pentecost. 3,000 people want to be baptized that day. So my joke is that's one hell of a good homily if you can get 3,000 converts in one day. So, after Pentecost, there's this boom. Um, But they kept the same organization. Um, After Pentecost, they just add to it. They have apostles, deacons, and priests. Um, So, Think about this. In Epiphany, in First Timothy, um, shows that there was an institutional church. Like, I love how um, St. Paul describes to Tim- Timothy the qualifications for bishops and pre- and deacons. Sorry. Um, that means organization. We get that organization from the Jewish uh, church. For the ordination, you'd have to lay on hands... That's exactly what Jews did. So um, apostles would start a new, uh, sorry, a a new parish community, but it was all one church. And then they would lay hands on an overseer, a a episcopoi. And so what they would do is that, if you have this church, it sounds kind of strange, you would spend three days, and you would um, pray, who should we who does the Holy Spirit say that we should ordain as Episcopal, bishop? And, of course, we choose Larry. And then we get other bishops, or the apostles themselves, yeah, it'd be three of them, that would lay on hands. Does that make sense? That shows an organized church. Remember, in Judaism, you had high priests, ordinary priests, and then uh, uh, workers, people that take care of the temple, do all the work. Um, That's what the early church was like priests, sorry, uh, bishops, priests, deacons. Or um, uh, he says to, to Timothy and Titus, Titus, make people, uh, he ordains Titus. And then the problem is the priests don't respect him and the deacons don't respect him. And he says, make them feel your authority. He never says, you know, just let everybody do what they want. Let them start their own church. That's an organized. Does that make sense? Or, and I love this one. Um, there's this great deacon in the early church in Acts named Philip, and Philip converts this Ethiopian eunuch, and then he goes up to Samaria, and the shocking part, he converts an entire Samarian town to Christianity, and he baptizes them, and then he calls for Peter and John to come up. Why does he call for, and this is in Acts, why does he call for Peter and John to come up? confirmation. Deacons can do baptism, but only bishops can do confirmation. Does that make sense? What that, my only point about that is that, well, wait a minute, even in the Bible, uh, the early church had a structure, an organization. They didn't make it up. They inherited from Judaism. And yes, they would elect their own bishops, um, that's actually technically how bishops and priests are selected today. I know you think they're appointed from Rome. Actually, they, and they are, but officially the position is they have to be elected. So even St. Uh, Benedict warns against outside influences in the election of a bishop. Um, I just mentioned that because later on emperors will try and select the bishop, and that will be a big fight. Um, uh, deacons. Deacons are from the early church. Um, this is going to shock you. I don't want to get too much into this because I'm wasting time. Um, I have a lot more to cover. Um, but what happens you have the 12 apostles, but there's too much work for them to do. They have administration. They can't do it, so they have the idea of Levites, uh, workers. Deacon means server. So it actually goes, um, you have the 12 apostles and the episcopoi, Then they ordain deacons to do the work, and the church keeps expanding, so they ordain priests. Um, So this sounds kind of strange. Which came first, priests or deacons? Yeah, because we're the princesses. Um, uh, But really, it was bishops. But this sounds kind of strange. There's another early church document, shocking, called the Didache. The Didache, um, it's, incredibly important. I'll talk about it later. But it describes how to do baptisms and how to do masses. And once again, it's an intertestamental. It's written at the same time that the Gospel of John is written. My whole point is, the way the structure of the church, it's not like made up centuries later. The structure of the church was there before the New Testament was even finalized. And one more structural thing. The idea of a council um, so the problem is there's this big controversy in the early church. This is an Acts that Peter and especially Peter and Paul have welcomed Gentiles into the church. And Jews didn't like Gentiles, so that was a controversy. Um, and so the controversy is, well, they're, they're going to become part of the church. Should we make them uh, be circumcised and follow kosher laws and all that other stuff? Um, what about all that? So there's this huge fight. They gather together in a council, um, and Peter and Paul have kind of a disagreement. Paul, you know, Peter is a little bit of a... His name is Rock, but he's pretty flip-floppy. But the council comes up uh, and makes a decree that ah, we Gentiles don't have to be circumcised or keep kosher. So this sounds kind of strange. The highest authority... In the church is not st. Peter organizationally it's a council does that make any sense um, so yeah there is a structure even among the 12 but the highest authority is a council or think when um, Judas commits suicide the 11 apostles they pick a 12th one that's a type of council there had to be 12 the number 12 was important so the first council was Jerusalem where they voted, um, and they called it a synod. Uh, that's the highest authority. So the other issue is that just the idea of St. Paul, if you're studying the early church. So comes from a Jewish background. St. Paul is very Jewish, but he welcomes us Gentiles. And it's no exaggeration to say there would be no church without St. Paul, um, because he welcomed us he transformed the church by welcoming all us Gentiles, the Greeks, and moved it from being beyond, just being a Jewish sect. Um, uh, So, he pushed it to be completely different. He pushed the role of women, St. Paul did. Um, uh, He he praises Lydia. Lydia is the one who, um, she's a dealer of purple, I just love that name, Lydia. Uh, Dealer of purple. She hears St. Paul and She opens up her house, so her house becomes the first church there. St. Paul says, Juna is the greatest apostle of all. Now, let me explain that. Um, Do you guys ever read that line about Juna being the greatest apostle of them all? Mm. So if I ask you on a test, Larry, who's the greatest apostle of all? You'd say Juna. And the next question would be, who the hell's (laughs) Juna? We don't know. Now, let me she's not one of the 12. And like Luke does this. Luke will say the 12 apostles. And other times he'll say the 12 gathered. Anytime he says like the 12 gathered, it means the church gathered. Does that mean it doesn't mean 12 individuals. 12 means the church. When he means the 12 individual apostles, he'll say the 12. Does that make sense? So, this sounds kind of strange in one sense. All of us are apostles. We are sent out. It doesn't mean there's Peter, Paul, uh, Philip, and oh yes, Juna. Um, that's not what St. Paul means. Does that make sense? Uh, it means she was this great Christian. Um, apostle in the sense that she somehow led to a lot of conversions. We really don't know who she is. But St. Paul, shy, this is very kind of anti-Jewish, or un-Jewish, I should say, um, uh, he really pushed women. Um, So, anyhow, um, he really pushed conversion and the idea of mission. So, this sounds sad, but the Jewish faith lost the sense of evangelization. Where for you to be Jewish, you're just born Jewish. But Jews were supposed to, if you read the whole Old Testament, God wants to start Abraham's family. And through Abraham's family, you're going to turn the whole world into one big family. You're going to be the ones who teach them justice. But they became kind of, you know, circle the wagons. It's just us. Does that make any sense? So you have all these prophecies. No, no, no. It's going to open up to everybody. Um, And so Jews kind of lost the idea that they have to convert the world. Um, And so Christ sends them out to the four corners. We're never meant to be in insulated church and I mention that because like, I've known parishes that have no RCA program they have no program to welcome new Catholics shouldn't that shock you since that's one of the mandates of Christ to convert the world when he says go out it doesn't mean like that godless territory of Post Falls um, oh those people are obnoxious um, but he means like for us In Coeur d'Alene, we should be welcoming people, not a closed society. So St. Paul um, really pushes evangelization. It wasn't very Jewish of his time, but it's true to the um, uh, scripture. So the early Christians were Jewish. So whatever happened to Jewish Christians? Few would have guessed that this little tidy Jewish sect would become the dominant religion in the empire with really a very short amount of time. Remember, Malachi said this new church would cover the globe and include Gentiles. And the odd part is, um, what happened to the Jewish Christians? They basically got overwhelmed with us Gentile Christians. But early on, a persecuted star- persecution started. Remember, St. Paul was part of the persecution um, against St. Stephen, um, And in 66 A.D., St. James, one of the apostles, uh, one of the three top apostles, um, uh, a persecution started, and he was executed. Um, And so uh, this division developed between um, Messianic Jews, Christians, and Jews. And it'll explain why in the Bible it says that some Pharisees and priests converted Um, I always like that line that, oh, my God, thank God, priests have converted to Jesus. Um, But what they meant is Jewish priests. Some of the Pharisees and Jewish priests had converted to Catholicism. And if you look at the list of early bishops, because remember, we always kept lists of uh, the line of bishops. That was very important to be um, descended from the 12. If you look at the early lists, they're all Jewish names because... We were the sect, uh, we're Messianic Jews. Um, so anyhow, um, uh, just going over the history, I want to pause because I didn't get very far. I only got page 12 of 40. Um, but that's right, we got weeks to go through this. Sorry, I went a little too heavy on the Jewishness of the Catholic Church because... Um, I get people who still today say, well, we're not related to the Jews. Well, we came from... Does that make sense? Um, but the big thing happened in 70 AD. What's the big event that happened in 70 AD? Yes. Jerusalem. So after Christ died, remember he said that Jerusalem would be destroyed, that the temple would be destroyed? And they're like, no way. Well, after he died... Uh, the Jews rebelled against Rome. And the shocking part is, for a moment, they actually won. They drove the Romans out. But you know those Italians, they had bad tempers. Um, they came back with greater force, and it was horrific. They starved them out. They slaughtered everybody. Um, they destroyed every, leveled Jerusalem. Um, and so in 80 AD, this mal, maldiction, I like that word, was added to synagogue worship. A malediction is a curse. Um, For the apostates, let there be no hope. So when Rome is coming back to take their revenge on um, Jerusalem, this call goes out for all Jews to come and defend Jerusalem. But Jesus said Jerusalem would be destroyed. They were supposed to go to the four corners of the earth. So the Christians left Jerusalem. No, we're not supposed to stay in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was destroyed, and at that point in 80, this malediction at synagogue worships was added. um, For the the apostates are are us. For the apostates, let there be no hope and uprooted in the kingdom of arrogance and speedily in our day. May the Nazareans and the sectarian perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life. Um, And then in 135 A.D., in this Council of Pharisees, um, uh, that's actually when we were condemned. So it's at the Council of Jaffa that it was declared that it was cursed to be a Christian. Um, So the point being is that after 70 A.D., you have this complete split between Christianity and Judaism. Does that make sense? Um, So... That's actually the complete split. Um, but Jerusalem had been wiped off the face of the earth. So just to explain this. Remember, if I, say, if I ask you, where's the mother church of the Catholic church? Not Rome. Think historically. Jerusalem. That's where Christ died. Does that make sense? But Okay, so what do you do if Jerusalem is destroyed? How do you know who's pope? And so they gathered together, and um, uh, there was one place where two of the apostles died. Uh, Peter and Paul both died in what city? So after that, whoever is named Bishop of Rome um, is Pope, is, succeeds Peter. Does that make sense? That's why, like, that should shock you because when people say, well, you know, Rome is the mother church of the Catholic Church, no, actually, it's Jerusalem. And what would happen if Rome gets hit by a nuclear bomb? What would happen? Bishops would gather together and they'd vote, okay, where's the new Rome? And you know they would choose Coeur d'Alene. But the structure, uh, script, uh, even scripture, think about this. Where did Scripture come from? The Catholic Church. So if somebody ever holds up in the Bible and says, I just believe in the Bible, well, who told you that's sacred? You you know what I mean? Like, the Catholic Church is the one that wrote it. Um, The Catholic Church is the one who said it's holy. Um, So remember, there's all these other documents at the time of the early church. Uh, Like, they wanted to put the letter of Clement, because it's quite old, in the Bible. Why didn't they put the... Some people wanted Why didn't they put the letter of Clement into the, into the New Testament? It had to be read at liturgy, at the Eucharist. Does that make sense? And so, go ahead, you had a question. Um, I was hoping it was a longer question. Um, yeah, because it had to be read at, script, at, at Mass, the Didache describes how to celebrate Mass. It's not read at Mass. Dan, yeah. Can I can I handle that question next time? Because that works really well with a persecution, and um, that's a great question. Love it. Don't forget that, Dan. Ask your wife to remind you, because I really don't trust your memory. Um, But the point being is that, um, uh, um, like the Didache, written in about 70 A.D., um, it celebrates, it gives great advice. And you know the really shocking part, if you read the Didache, as old as as it is, as old as the New Testament, the surprising part is that it's not surprising. If you read the Didache without knowing that it was the Didache, you'd say, well, this just describes Mass. Like, you wouldn't be shocked about any of it. Um, it has some very Jewish prayers in it, but you'd realize, well, this is just a description of what we're doing, except for the glory. The glory was added in the Middle Ages. If you didn't notice the glory was missing, you wouldn't recognize really much different. Um, now, I mentioned it because many Protestants try to pose that, believe it or not, this is among more extreme Protestants, that Judaism was made so hard that it prepared us to reject the Old Testament. (laughs) Um, We'd say, no, the early Christians were Jewish, and they didn't see Christ as rejecting thousands of years of theology, um, but fulfilling thousands of years. Um, So... The beginning is the Jewish church. Now I have 15 minutes, so I'm going to try and get to... So my first part is, ah, the importance of Judaism. My second part is going to be the importance of the Hellenization of the church, the Greeks, um, when us Gentiles came in. So this kind of, If you a- ask, what is a Catholic church? You have to appreciate what the Greeks added, um, and that is philosophy. So... With the Greeks coming in, uh, the Gospels are written down in what language? So to understand the New Testament, you have to understand Greek. And to understand the Gospel of John, you have to understand Greek philosophy because it uses Greek philosophy. Um, And the other important part, with the Gentiles coming in, at first, like Jesus starts in Galilee. Galilee is the rural area in the north. That's where, no offense, like northern Idaho. It's the wild, and it's not the center of power. Christianity at first would have been rural. With all us Gentiles come in, we turn into an urban religion. Christianity becomes more of an urban religion with the Greeks. Now, at this point, the only thing people speak is Greek. If you're saying, why Greek? Because Alexander the Great conquered Asia Minor, and everybody spoke Greek. You might speak Aramaic, and you might speak... I don't know what the heck you speak, Pittsburghese, Um, but everybody spoke Greek. So the early Bible is written, the New Testament is written in Greek. The apostles spoke Greek. Jesus spoke Greek. The first councils were in Greek. Everything is Greek, Greek, Greek. Does that make sense? But it made us a worldwide religion where you could be this and you could be from that part, but all of us spoke Greek one way of worshiping together, Greek. The other thing about the Greeks coming in with their philosophical background is they added apology to the church. Apology doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means a way of explaining. Does that make sense? Greeks were into the debating and philosophy, so apologists tried to explain Christianity using cultural terms that that Gentiles or Greeks would understand. Because remember, it says, in the beginning was the Logos. Logos is not a Jewish understanding. Logos is a Greek philosophical term. The Greek philosophers believed that there's this fiery substance that ruled the universe, and it's the Logos. Um, And the Greeks, the Logos, you could say means word, but it's more closer to the word logic, that there's this divine intelligence. The Greeks believed with math and all this other stuff clearly There's this divine intelligence that guides creation. That intelligence they called the logos. Does that make sense? So when they say that Jesus, uh, the logos took flesh in Jesus, you'd only understand that, not if you're Jewish, but if you're Greek. Or Justin, Justin Martyr, um, he's this um, uh, stoic philosopher. Really great. uh, Died in 165 AD, so pretty early. And He used uh, Plato, Platonic Metaphysics, to um, show, uh, explain Catholic liturgy to the Greeks. And he claimed that Aristotle and Socrates, they were Christians before Christ. What the Greek philosophers were really searching for was really Christ. The Logos is the truth, except the truth is Christ. And so he was this great evangelist for um, Catholicism using Greek philosophy. He loved Greek philosophy. Just a brief story. Loved Greek philosophy. Meets this guy who's a Christian. And he says, oh, you like Greek philosophy. I have something even better. And he's overtaken with Christianity. So he starts to explain Christianity using uh, Hellenistic Greek philosophy. So it gave us a lot of things. Uh, evangelizing, one common language, um, uh, an intellectual way of explaining the church. That's really not a very Jewish way. It also added some negative things. Um, and one negative thing is this. Um, Jew, this a Jewish belief, the Jewish belief is ortho, orthopraxy is more important than orthodoxy. And what I mean by that is this. Um, what you th- or Jews are about orthopraxy. I will believe you by what you do. Does that make sense? Greeks are more orthodoxy, uh, more in their head about right belief. Does that make sense? So with the Greeks coming in, there's more emphasis on um, what you think, how you think, what you say. Does that make sense? Um, I, I'm getting a strange look from you. It's kind of scary. Did I lose you on that? Because a lot of people, they might have a degree in theology, but they don't love very well. That's a down point, that now you can be excellent at theology, but not good at practicing it. Um, does that make any So that's a slight cost that we got with uh, Gentiles, uh, Greeks. Um, also, Greeks were hostile to women. You think the Arabs are mean to women? You know who taught them that? The Greeks. Um, so you had this problem. Um, I'd say Greeks could be very hostile towards women. Um, and yet, if you look in the church, early church, women were a big, big part of it. Uh, ancient crit- critics of Christianity said it was a religion mostly of women and children. Because most women really did. Um, if you look at the perse- list of persecutions, guess most of the people who were persecuted, guess who they were. And you can't really blame because Christ really elevated women. And I know this sounds kind of strange. I'm just a little Christ revolutionized marriage because before Christianity, marriage was just a contract. You would enter into and out of. Does that make sense? Even among the Jews, and Jews had a high respect towards women compared to Romans and Greeks. But um, like even in Judaism, you could divorce your wife for what, you know, whatever reason you want and upgrade it to a younger model. <laughs> so um, Jesus basically says, no, it was never meant to be that way. From the beginning of creation, um, you're enter, in, supposed to enter into it, into a lifelong union. You know, self-sacrifice. And the apostles are so shocked by that. They said, well, who can do that? (laughs) But now, like, that's the big revolution. He raised women up. Um, And so, um, like, if you ever, it's overwhelming. If you ever study the early martyrs, virgin martyr, virgin martyr, virgin martyr. martyr. And when it says virgin martyr, it's not about sex. When it says virgin martyrs, what upset the Romans so much is... um, if it was a contract, you marry who your family tells you to marry. Does that mean because there's money and wealth involved in that? But early Christians, women had this sense of dignity that, no, it's this promise of self-sacrifice. I can marry who I want to. The Romans weren't going to have that. And so they brutalized, humiliated these women who are caught as Christians because that silliness has to end. So they'd put them in brothels and rape them and um, burn them. Most of them were women. But even if you look at Jesus, the shocking part, if you read the Gospel of Luke, not only did the 12 apostles travel with Jesus, who else traveled with Jesus? And, wow, they took care of them. Or in the letter of uh, St. Paul, you hear about Priscilla and Aquila. Well, that should shock you. St. Paul calls them co-workers. He's making a woman his equal. Uh, And he says he owes them their life. And four out of the six times that they're mentioned in his writings, he writes the wife's name first. That would have been unacceptable in Roman custom. You know the man should always be first. Um, That was a joke, sorry. But um, you understand what St. Paul is doing. He's pushing the boundaries of women. Um, And even John Christum said uh, that um, uh, uh, she was greater than Apollo. So, um, you know, you you have all these women. You have Phoebe, the deacon. And yes, if you read Acts, women in the early church were made deacons. There's never, um, in the early church, there's never a woman priest in the early church, but Lydia had Eucharist in her house. Phoebe was a deacon um uh you had all these deacons um, uh, uh Saint Philip's uh daughter um, was a deacon uh T- Tertullian mentioned women who get their prophecy during the Eucharist um, there's this early church uh, uh, fiction that had this very uh, uh, called the shepherd of Hermes it, it also People wanted to be part of the Bible, but it's it's this fictitious story about the role of women being very, very high. Um, That would have been very shocking to many Romans and Greeks at the time, but that's what the early church did. So just FYI, Pope Francis made some wrinkles today, saying, oh, he's open to having women deacon in the church again, if the bishops are. I don't think the bishops are. Um, But... um, that would be early church. So I come up on an hour, so I should end. But do you see how the early church is rooted in Judaism? And the early church is also rooted in, really, the Greeks as well. Questions, objections? Confusion? Okay, anybody want to read this book? Which, it's a great book. Okay, give it to that Sicilian grandmother back there. Um, Okay, so next time we're going to cover, so I'm trying to do this, think of it this way. The Jewishness of the church, the Greekness of the church, next time we're going to do the Romanization of the church. So it's going to be martyrdom and the Roman Empire. So let's end in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without and amen all right i just thought no um i still if you guys won't mind i still because i'm only on page 24 i still want to cover some of these early greek christians because it's just such great stuff that i like so we'll do more greek and a little roman next week so hello this is father lynn mcmillan I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern, supporting the podcast financially, your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.